0: Thank you for listening to the Redeemer podcast. Redeemer exists to make the gospel of Jesus known in our city, region, and world. Subscribe to the Redeemer podcast and not only access our weekly sermons, but also select special talks and lectures by myself and our guest speakers. If you want to know more about Redeemer and how you can be a part of what God is doing through our church, go to www.redeemerbible.ca. Thank you, and we hope that you are blessed by what you are about to hear. Good morning, and we are into, I don't even know what sermon, but we're into Acts uh, 2, and we're going to be reading Acts 2:14 to 41. It's a big passage, but it's, ser- it's uh, Peter's sermon on Pentecost, and um, yeah, we're going to delve into that, so join me. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words, for these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You, shall have, sorry, you have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you, you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So, in this passage, Peter is there witnessing what's happening at Pentecost, and he realizes, as we talked briefly about last week, that the evidence, the things they were seeing and hearing, weren't sufficient to change their hearts for some reason. They saw what was happening, but no one professes faith. They're just confused, they're mocking him, Uh, the, the crowd's thinking they're drunk. And so Peter, realizing that this incredible event, these things of God, these wonders and signs, are going to be misunderstood, so he speaks up. And this shouldn't surprise us. We know that, and I mentioned it before, that speech renders act unambiguous. That the acts can be interpreted in many ways. And so God sends people into the world to, not just, to help people interpret what they're seeing, what, the way their life is. And so Peter speaks up because he wants to make sure they understand why this is happening. And in this sermon, he, there's so much happening. I mean, there's so many ways we could go this morning, but we're going to go in this direction. He outlines exactly what a Christian is and isn't. What is a Christian? And the reason this is important is, first, in the church, it's surprisingly um, unclear sometimes. But outside of the church, it is incredibly unclear. And there's so many examples of it. I, I was struggling to find just one. But the most recent one was we are watching, uh, there was an episode of MASH on TV. And then he knows this, this show MASH. And it tells the story of this, this surgical this hospital in the Korean War. It's a comedy mixed with drama. And in part of it, Hawkeye, Pierce, Alan Alda, is trying to help a horse that is sick. And as he's helping this horse named Sophie, the chaplain, who listen, when I see chaplains in shows, I get so frustrated because they're never Christian. They speak because secular people are writing for them, and they're I'm like, ugh, oh, the worst advice. But Father Mulcahy walks up and he says this You're a good Christian. And oh, I mean that sincerely, Hawkeye. Sophie is one of God's creatures too. And so when he says that, what millions of people watching this show think and what Christians come to believe and too many pastors preach is the silliness that what makes somebody a Christian is their good behavior. A good Christian is known by their good behavior, and if you behave well, you're a Christian. Despite the fact that throughout the entire series, Alan Alda's character, Hawkeye, is very outspoken about not being a Christian, about being agnostic and his lifestyle, Leaves much to be desired, if you know the show. And so there's this question: What makes a good Christian? And what Father Mulcahy is doing there is exactly what too many people have done: is they've mistaken the word that has now taken on a very radically different meaning in the culture. And C.S. Lewis covers this in his books, A Mere Christianity. He says there's a couple of Christian is not understood. And as an example, think of the word gentleman. Once upon a time, the word gentleman was a definitive title. It wasn't saying something that you felt about a person. It was a title. A gentleman was somebody who, who owned land. They had a title from the, from, uh, from the king. Their family was a part of the aristocracy. So to be called a gentleman was not an opinion. It was a fact. Like calling somebody a doctor. It was a fact. But somewhere along the lines, probably try, probably sincerely wanting to do good, somebody, I suppose there was somebody who started this, said, but surely the real gentleman is the one who behaves like a gentleman ought. And so what happens is over time, we start saying, oh, what a gentleman when he opens the door for you. And when he's kind to you, when someone is kind there is what a gentleman. But when that happens, says Lewis, and he's right, the word ceases to tell you anything true but only opinion. Because now a gentleman, when you say somebody's a gentleman, you're saying nothing definitive about the person. You're just saying what you think about them. I think they're kind. I think they're nice. I think they're noble. And with Christians, it's the exact same thing. Over time, once upon a time, and to, well, not once upon a time, forever and ever, a Christian has a definitive meaning. It is not about your behavior; it's about your standing. And over time, we thought, but surely, the one who behaves like a Christian is a Christian. So then, before you know it, there's people out here, and even in my own family, even who are convinced that, oh no, I'm I'm okay with God. I'm a Christian. Why? Because I behave. You know, I don't kick old ladies when I walk by them. You know, I adopt pets. I'm very kind. And Father Mulcahy is added to the problem by saying this is what a Christian is, a good Christian. It's just not true. That's not the, that's not the definition. And so we look here at this very first sermon of the church and we see amongst many things, because again, we can't say everything, is what is a Christian? And we're going to see, believe it or not, guys, there's four points, and I'm going to move quickly through them, but there's four. To be a Christian means knowing something, accepting something, trusting something and then receiving something. Okay? So, first, knowing something. Christianity has content. You can when you become a Christian, you don't come to a moral code that you then must follow to be considered a Christian. You come to a person. You come to Christ. And it would be silly for me to say I was friends with Frank Sinatra because I know a little bit about him. There's certainly, you know, if I if I, I have to know a lot about him. I mean, if he's my friend, I must have encountered him. And I come then to know, if I say I know Sarah, my wife, well, it's because I must know something about her, not just that she exists. There must be something I know. There's content there. And to be a Christian, there's content. There's things you must know if you're going to be a Christian. And, and Peter outlines it quite simply for us. And he start, In fact, he starts it. We know he, he's saying this, and we know it through Scripture, but he says directly, let this be known to you, give ear to my word. That's how he starts the whole sermon. Because what he's saying is, hey, if you're going to understand what is happening, you have to know something. You have to know who this Jesus claims to be before you can say, I accept him. Because if you don't know, how do you know you accept him? And so what do you have to know? And this is what he says. He says three, well, a lot of things. I I can't say, I can't be exhaustive. But the first thing is you have to know who Jesus claims to be, who he is. And in this, look at the language Peter uses. First, as a guy who teaches preachers sometimes how to preach, I love that the first thing he says is, "Men of Israel, hear, hear these words." Jesus, oh, I love it. Starts with Jesus. That's the center of all of everything for Christians. But then he says, "He is a man. He is a man. So a man attested by God, right through signs. This is not just a normal man, but he's a man. He existed. He was flesh. He's historical. He is a person. But he did these incredible special things, these miracles and everything." So first he says, Jesus is a man. Second thing is, he is the Holy One. This is when he's quoting Psalm 16 in, the, in this sermon. He's not just a man, but he's holy. He's set apart. And calling somebody holy is not super um, common in the ancient world. And so they're saying, he's saying something definitive about the kind of man he is. But then he goes on, and he says he is the Christ. So here we have what I've talked about a couple weeks ago as well, briefly, is Jesus is only understandable to us Gentile types because he is the Messiah of Israel. He is the Christ. He's not just a man. He's not just the Holy One of God, but he has been chosen to be this particular person in the history of creation. He is the one chosen to be Messiah, the one who is to come and be king over God's people, to usher in the kingdom, to pour out his spirit, and all fulfill all those messianic things. He's the Messiah. He is the chosen one. And if you're going to be a Christian, you need to know he was a man. He is holy. And he is the Messiah. And then, the, the, well, there's more, but the last thing is he calls him Lord. And he uses Psalm 110. And I think I, I preached Psalm 110 when I first got here, like two or three years ago, uh, for Christmas. But in that psalm, the most quoted psalm in the New Testament, when, what you don't see it in the, in the In the Greek, it just says Kyrios, Lord and Lord, to the same word. But in the Hebrew, when you read it, it says that Yahweh said to my Adonai. So he's using two different words. So what, what David is saying, and remember, this is the king of Israel, and he is saying, Yahweh, God, says to my Adonai, my Lord, sit at my right hand until so I make your enemies my footstool, or your footstool. So he's speaking to two different lords here. But who is the Lord of the king of Israel? He is to have no Lord except for God. And so this Adonai, whoever it is, cannot be David because he is David's Lord. And so what Peter is doing here is he is saying that psalm has been pointing all along to the Messiah and Jesus is this Adonai. He is the Lord to whom he was speaking. And so you need, if you want, Christians need to know Christ is a man, he is holy, he is the Messiah, and he is Lord of all. Okay? Can't go into everything that that all means. There's an awful lot. So we need to know who he is. Second thing we're told here is we need to know what Jesus did. If you're going to be a Christian, you have to know what he did. And what he did specifically is he was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Verse 23. Jesus was born to die. There was no way he could have avoided it. He was chosen to die. This is it. And he chose chose himself to die as well. Read John when he says, no one takes my life from me. But he has come to do something very specific, to die in the place of man, to pay the penalty that man deserves. And this is where it's, you know, what's so incredible when in verse 24, he then says it was impossible for death to hold him. It's impossible. And the reason was that death was prescribed to the guilty. Guilty people die. Jesus, not being guilty, though dying for the guilty, the righteous for the unrighteous, he could not be held by death. It was very simple. And because he was the Messiah, because he did die as the righteous one for the unrighteous, he could not be Held in death. So he rose, and he uses Psalm 16 to talk about that. And if that's the case, then we know who Jesus is. He is Lord and Messiah and man, etc. And what did he come to do? To die for you and then to be raised for you. So that's, a Christian has to grasp that. And lastly, and there's a lot here I can't say, is we know how we can know him. How do we know him? To know God means how do we come to know him? Because it's funny, there's a lot of people who think, you can, know, you can know God, but then deny that Scripture is Scripture. I have a serious problem with that. If Scripture is not true, then we have a problem with what Peter is saying here. Because he is using Scripture to explain who Jesus is. He is he, see what he does? Listen to this beautiful sermon. It's, very, it's quite expository. He, says he uses three passages and explains who Jesus is and what's happening on Pentecost. He uses Joel to say this is what Jesus is currently doing. He is now sitting at the right hand, and he's pouring out his Spirit... And you can now know him through a number of ways, including dreams, which I heard we heard a little bit about. There's other ways to know him. It's not his norm. It's not the norm. Not everybody's just having dreams. But that's a way. So God, through Joel, he says that's what was happening. But then he also says through Psalm 110, here's who Jesus is, his identity. And he was raised because Psalm 16. And so, if those passages are just human desire, you know, I'm just talking, it's my, it's my testimony about God, but it's not necessarily true, which a lot of liberal Christians will say if that's the case then Peter is a liar at best or he's just giving you suggestions there's nothing definitive here but it's not true it's, what he's saying is you can know him through his word if you want to know who God is encounter him first and foremost in his word that's how you'll know you have a dream that's great it better be it ought to be consistent with scripture you feel you have a vision somebody comes to you and says something something occurs scripture becomes the, test, the, 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 the litmus test. And that's what Peter is doing here. He's, it's actually spot on. He's using scripture to tell you who Christ is, which is exactly what you should do because Jesus himself in John 5 says, um, you search the scriptures because you think in that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. All the Bible points to Jesus. Every bit of it. It's soaked in, in Christ. Or Christ is soaked in it. Call it what you want. And so, we can know him. So, what do we need to know? Who Jesus is, what he came to do, and how we can know him. But we can also know him, of course, through his witness, or witnesses, us, through people, the people of God. God is using Peter here to preach the gospel, to interpret scripture. It's amazing to me that we have the Holy Spirit and we have scripture, and yet God says, I'm also going to ask that all of you go and tell people face to face. And they have to hear it. ever notice it's not just because in Romans 10 when he says that how can they be called if they're not told, uh, how, how, they, how can they repent and, and believe if they haven't been told and how will they be told if someone isn't sent? It's interesting that he says that they have to hear the gospel. And it's not just because they're in a culture that has no internet, but because there's something about proximity. To hear someone, you have to be close to them. There's a nearness. And so this isn't just us sending out marketing pamphlets. It's about Maybe we send out those too, but it's ultimately to get the one-on-one conversation, to get close and to convey the story. And so God, he is what Christ says he is, what Peter says he is. We know what he's come to do, and we can know him through his word and through his witnesses and through, of course, as we said, dreams and such. So this is what we have to know. If you're going to be a Christian, you need to know these things. And even take somebody like the thief on the cross who you'd say, well, listen, he doesn't have robust theology. No, I'm not saying you have to have robust theology. But what the thief on the cross did know was this. If there is any hope for me, it's because this man can do it. He is innocent and he suffered. We're guilty. See what he says? I'm guilty. We're guilty, thief. I don't know what side. We're guilty. He is innocent. And if I'm going to see eternity and paradise, it's only through him. Those few words show an actual incredibly deep understanding of who he is. So, you have to know something, but then you have to accept something as well. And Peter then says very clearly, you don't have to, it's not about just hearing the words about who Jesus is, but you have to actually accept them as well. Accept the testimony. It's not just the facts, because listen to what he says in verse 36. Know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. Know for certain. See, you've heard the truth, you know, you know the story, but now you have to accept it as true. It's not just um, just hearing the story. You have to now accept it. Believe that it, it's true. And Christians believe all of these claims that, of, of, of who Jesus is. And what it, when he says accept it, it's not, and this gets built up in the New Testament, it's not just God saying, you must accept it because I say so, even though that's probably good enough. But it's not what he says. Because all you see through the New Testament, and even Jesus, is saying, test it. Try it out. Ask questions. Seek. Accept it but do the diligent work of trying to figure it out if you have to. But this word is true. Do what you must, but try to attest it to be true. And you have to accept it. And then he gets a little bit dicey here, in a good way. Know for certain. You have to know it. It's interesting. He says you must accept this truth. If you're a Christian, you must accept these things, that Jesus is who he says he is, he's died for you, etc. But then Peter hints at what Paul will later expand on in Romans, that they seem to know it. Yes, you have to accept it, but let's face it, you already know it. Because listen to what he says. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. So these are people who have come from all over the known world to come celebrate Pentecost. And he is saying, you all know what he's done. You know he's he's from God. How do they know it? And this is something at very least would tinge on or point to Romans 1 when Paul gets, well, very blunt. Paul's very blunt. And he says, all humanity, doesn't matter if you've heard the gospel preached to you directly or not, you're all accountable because you all, all humanity understands and knows that God is God. Even if you haven't heard the gospel, you're accountable for your conscience and what you see revealed in nature. And the passage, I'll read it because it's so good. All of us, he says, suppress the truth. Suppresses the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and foolish in their hearts. Sorry, and their foolish hearts were darkened. And so... We have to actually believe this truth. And when sometimes I I talk to a lot of skeptics as regularly as I can. And when they say, but listen, I don't actually believe this. I don't, I disagree. I don't think, I, I don't think there's any part in me that deeply believes this and I'm suppressing it. And I use one very simple little example. And there's many you could use. If any of us is walking along a beach. And your sun sets, you're walking along, everything is right in the world. And as you're walking on this secluded beach, you see your name written out on the sand. My name, four letters, C-A-R-L. What would you do if you saw that? Well, first, I would feel a little creeped out, right? Somebody watching me, what's happening? And I would immediately start looking around. And why would I look around? Well, I would do it because I assume that it's not accidental. Because we are humans, and we know that every time we see order, there must be an orderer. If my name is written in the sand, surely somebody wrote it there. The odds of the tide just washing a, a turtle up that out of a sudden worked out my name is pretty slim. And so I say, if that's the case, if you and I believe, hardened skeptic or believer, that four letters indicates an, uh, somebody, an author, then how much more this world that is so perfectly ordered I told my kids this week, did you know if the earth, because we're traveling, I don't know how many miles per hour, the earth is spinning, 90,000 kilometers? I don't remember. Whatever that number is, let's say 90,000, you can email me if I'm wrong. We're moving really quickly. If the earth stopped spinning for one second, you know what would happen? You and I would continue to move at 90,000 miles per hour. For one second. Meaning all of creation would fall apart. Every building would crumble. Every person would have their brains smattered on the walls. Everything ends with one second of order falling apart. And you have the nerve to just tell me you don't suppress the truth that something ordered this? We all know it, but we suppress it because we are depraved. So we have to know something, but then we have to accept it. But it's not just merely accepting it academically, because James is very clear. Demons understand this. They accept the truth of who God is. They, they do. But what they don't do is honor Him and trust Him to be Lord. And so the last one is you have to trust something. And this is fascinating to me, that he preaches, and his preaching leads to conviction, which we should have known, John 16, God the Christ says that the Spirit will come and convict the world of their sin. But as he's preaching, what happens? When they heard this, they were cut to the heart, and they asked, what shall we do? So, here's the interesting question you have to ask. What did they heard? What did they hear? What is it that they heard that caused them To be cut, pierced to the heart is the Greek word. To be pierced. What is it? Well, they heard, yes, they heard the truth about who Jesus is, but they also heard the truth about who they are. Because on two occasions, Peter says, you crucified and killed him, this Jesus whom you crucified. So they hear not only about the gospel's grace, the goodness of God, but they hear that they are the worst of sinners, the ones who literally killed God. And as they do it, God is yet in the midst of their horror. As they are killing him, he is actually pouring out grace and saving them through their worst sin. And that cuts to the heart. When we hear the truth that we are saved while we were sinners, that we couldn't have saved ourselves, but that he saved us, this changes us, and this is what causes them to ask, well, what do we do now? We have to do something. And what does Peter do? He calls them to repent and be baptized. And when he does that, he is calling them to a lot of things. And I can't say everything, but I can say this. He's calling them to humiliation. Two different ways, public, or private and public humiliation. Becoming a Christian is humiliation. Let me explain what I mean by that. Because we know through Christ, his humiliation was a victory. And so I'm not suggesting this is a bad thing. But private humiliation. There's Jonathan Edwards, this American um, theologian who was in the first of the Great Awakening, 18th century. And he talks about what happens when someone hears the gospel and they're convicted. And they realize, oh my goodness, I'm a sinner. Listen to what Edward says. They are brought to a new conviction and a greater conviction than ever before of their own emptiness and to be sensible of what poor, feeble, helpless creatures and what sinful, vile, utterly unworthy creatures they are. How undeserving they are of any mercy and how much they deserve God's wrath. And this conviction works by a gracious humbling of the soul. What he means is to be a Christian, to repent, requires humiliation because it means admitting that you have spent your whole life pursuing the wrong things. That you have sought the wrong goals, you have served the wrong masters, you've invested in the wrong kingdoms, you've done everything wrong. Repentance by its very nature is a humbling, a humiliation of saying, I have to forsake myself and seek God. Right? That's what, he, that's what it is. So when he calls us to repent, he's, it's an act. You accept these ideas, you believe it to be true, but if you actually trust God, then you'll realize you're a sinner and you need to repent. And so repentance is a sign one of the signs of faith, that you actually repent. So when celebrities and politicians claim to be Christians, but they say, I have nothing to repent of, that's a problem. And not just celebrities and those, I just bring them up because they're the ones we're following for some reason. All of us. If you have not repented, you haven't met the risen king. Because when you see him, they all fall on their face. Peter knows, remember when he saw him earlier? Get away from me, Lord, a sinner. That's the effect the Holy One has on you. But when you see that the Holy God died for you, you then say, what must I do? It's a quick destruction and a tear down and rebuilding. So, it's humiliating first. Repentance is humiliation, but then baptism is also humiliation. Let me explain by what I mean by that. You cannot baptize yourself. If you can, there's no evidence of it in Scripture. It's, you're always, it's always another person. And we here at Redeemer and the church in general has, has generally made it a ga- a, 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 something we do, a rite, a, a sacrament, that happens in the gathering of the, of the church. And the reason is, it's, first it's a celebration, but it's also this. When you are baptized, you are showing your faith by saying, I now identify myself as a Christian. I identify myself with this poor Jewish messiah. That's the one I identify with. But it's also an identification with his church, his people, his family. And so, for instance, when you marry somebody, you don't just marry them. You don't just get the spouse, the husband or the wife. You get their crazy family. Don't you? Poor Sarah, poor Sarah. And you get that. So when we are are grafted into Israel... We gain. Abraham is our father in some, in some way, a real way, because adoption isn't a second-class citizen, right, in Christianity or in, 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 in the biblical thinking. And so when you, when you baptize publicly, what you're saying is, I identify with this group. And today in Canada, this is a hated group. We're a marginalized group. Like it or not, it's not the worst it's ever been, or worse as it will be, I'm sure. But the world is saying we're bigots, we hate gay people, there's all sorts of things we're being told. So when you come out and publicly say, this is my people, that's a humiliation in the world's eyes, and you lose something. And we're talking about the ortho- ultra-Orthodox Jews. You know how much they lose if they accept Christ. It's not just a, a, a different, now we have something to do Sundays. No, it's an incredible loss, which is why I love that Jesus says, anyone who has given up this stuff for me will gain a hundredfold the family they lost. Because many of you lost family. I mean, my family doesn't even hang out with me very much because I'm a Christian. And you are now my family. You're the ones I have to rely on. And vice versa. And so, it's a public humiliation, a private humiliation. And let me use this example before I move to the last point. Uh, that kind of sums it all up. This whole idea of faith, to be a Christian, what does it mean? And the Reformers did this much better, so I'm just basically saying you what Calvin and Luther and these guys said because they got it spot on. But I'll use a modern example. If you're walking through the forest, and you come upon a sign like this that says, "ice." safe for skating. How do you know if it's safe for skating? So first, let's go through the steps. The in, you know, the first step is no. you have to know something. Well, I know the information. The information is, the ice is safe for skating. The question is, now do I accept that to be true? Next step is then, accepting it where I test it. I put one foot on there. I throw a rock out there. I send one of my children out. No, 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 I don't, I don't, I don't. But you, know, you do that. Maybe you watch and you observe and you see other people skating and they're not falling in. But whatever it is, you then have to use your brain and you assent. In Latin, it's a census. I, I, have, the, I have the notitia. I have the knowledge. I see what it says. But now I'm assenting to that truth. I believe it is safer skating based on the evidence I see. Intellectually, I agree. It seems to support weight. Everything seems okay. But you don't actually have any faith in that sign until you step out on the ice yourself. And so this is where many Christians fall down. Many claiming people claim to be Christians. They believe it in their head. Intellectually, it makes sense. They're friends and family. They've seen evidence of transformation in other people. They know the story very well. But they won't actually trust him. They won't get on the ice. The moment you strap on your skates and jump on the ice shows that you have faith in that sign. If you do not, you do not have saving faith. Very simple. And you can talk about Jesus, I mean... This is why guys like John Wesley and Martin Luther could talk about having taught at seminaries for years before they were Christians. It's not because they weren't sincere, because they didn't understand that last portion. They weren't transformed. They didn't lean on him with all their understanding. And this is vital for us to trust. And the last thing is you receive something. If you, if you believe, if you have this sort of faith, Peter says very plainly, you'll receive in verse 38 forgiveness and the Holy Spirit. And these things, to receive forgiveness is, means that the humbling that you got when you had to repent was actually the birth pains of a new life. And he actually says that. I don't have it in front of me right this second. But when he says that Christ was delivered up from the, birth pain, from the pangs of death, that's the, the same idea. And with us, the humiliation that comes when you see that you are a sinner that no one could save except for Christ alone, and how miserable a sinner you are, which sounds pretty down, but it's true. You're brought low but then you're immediately brought back up again because you see how much he loves you. And you receive forgiveness. And in repenting, we find that God has absorbed the wrong that we did. And there's no other God in the whole history of humanity that does this. Allah will not humiliate himself for you. The God of Islam will not be humiliated. That's part of the reason Islam says Christ cannot be God, that God could not become incarnate. There's no way he could become incarnate because God would never humiliate himself to take on flesh. How humiliating. He took on flesh. And he even surrenders and obeys us. As a child, he obeys parents who are broken. He obeys teachers. He obeys traffic laws. I guess on a camel, I don't know. A donkey. He obeys everything. He obeys, he obeys to, the, to the cross, the death. Entirely for us. And so, and, but then, and then here's where the Spirit, that's forgiveness. But then you have the Spirit that we receive. Because the Spirit allows us to now live the life that He has won for us. Because otherwise we'll keep falling. But the Spirit comes and not only empowers us to live well, but He reminds us that we are saved. Over and over and over as a pastor, all I hear so often is people who cannot believe entirely that they're actually loved by God. Because the world has told them they're ugly, they're useless, they have no value, they're only as valuable as their sexual orientation, they're only as valuable as their uh, accomplishments or how well they are loved. It's the Dean Martin song, which I love Dean Martin, but it's a dumb song. You're nobody till somebody loves you. It's not true. You're somebody because Christ loves you, always. And so the Spirit then comes and says, you may feel abandoned. You may feel hopeless. You may feel like a failure, but you are forgiven. And that truth must be held onto when we're struggling. Christians Try to link, hang on to that truth. You come here every week and you'll hear the gospel preached every single week, Lord willing. Because what we're trying to do and what I'm trying to do is to assure you, I'm trying to make you sure you understand that your grip on him is weak, but his grip on you is unbreakable. And that no matter what happens, so long as the will to walk is there, he is pleased even when you stumble. That is the God we have. And so, if you're a skeptic, your past sin cannot keep you from Christ. And your good behavior won't save you from what you deserve. There's never good enough. I've had people say recently that, how do you get to heaven? Well, you should try to be a good person. How good? What's good enough? Pick a standard. Because I assure you, as good as you think you are, there's someone who thinks you're not good enough. And if you're a husband, it's probably your wife. And if it's your wife, it's probably your husband. Because we know each other. We know we're not perfect. What's the standard? Skeptic, accept the only one who will die for you and did die for you. Christians, however, you may be discouraged, but know and trust that you are kept and you are saved by Christ, and that is unbreakable. And I love, and I'll close with Martin Luther, because Martin Luther says it so well. He's uh, in a letter to a friend. He says, So when the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this, I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, Son of God, and where he is, there I shall be also. It's the gospel. If you're a Christian, you need to know something about Christ. He is Lord. He died for you. That's what he did. And then you have to accept it as true, but then trust it with all of your life. Trust him with your money, your time, your sexuality, your thinking, everything. Trust him with all of it, and you'll receive far more than you ever lost. There's no other hope. Let's pray.